Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. Ephesians chapter 2, and verse number 1, it says, And you, God made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true that you were dead in trespasses and sins. That I was dead in trespasses and sins, and that the whole world, ever since Adam, has been dead in trespasses and sins. We were born sinners because our father, Adam, transgressed God's holy covenant and rebelled against him and became a sinner and brought the curse of sin, the curse of sin upon the world. This world is under a curse and it is under a curse of sin. It's under a Curse of rebellion against God. Sin is the transgression of the law. And so we have been talking about some important things that we need to know. And first of all, in the importance of soteriology, which simply means the doctrines of salvation, one of the things you need to know, first of all, to hear and to know is the word atonement. Now we have been discussing this. And so we're not going to repeat everything that has been said. So I want to give a quote from J.C. Ryle, who was an Anglican minister in England back in the 1800s, who wrote this. He said, we can never attach too much importance to the atoning death of Christ. Hear that very clearly. He said, we can never attach too much importance importance. The reason why we're going through this subject is because we have came to a place where we don't attach any importance anymore. And these are some of the things that we have been explaining, that we now live in a world that completely has rejected a concept of atonement. However, the world works off of this concept of atonement. It is written in the universal laws of creation, and you cannot avoid it. You can try to reject it. You can try to replace it, but it's how the world works, which is the reason why J.C. Ryle said, we can never attach too much importance to the atoning death of Christ. It is the leading fact in the word of God on which the eyes of our soul ought to ever be fixed. Without the shedding of this blood, there is no remission of sin. It is the cardinal truth on which the whole system of Christianity hinges. Without it, the gospel is an ark without a keystone, a fair building without a foundation, a solar system without a sun, This, after all, is the master truth of Scripture that Christ died for our sins. 
To this let us daily return. On this let us daily feed our souls. Some like the Greeks of old may sneer at the doctrine and call it foolishness, but let us never be ashamed to say with Paul, be it far from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. End of quote. This topic that we have embarked upon is one of the essential topics of Christianity, but it is one of the many now. Uh, it's one of the ones that we're most ignorant about. Atonement. So we have dealt with this subject, showing the existential reality of atonement. In other words, that it just is. It exists. It is found in creation, both pre- and post-fall. We looked at the meaning of atonement in relation to atonement being satisfaction. Satisfaction for some transgression. In other words, God must be appeased. The whole world used to work on this concept, even the pagans. They would offer sacrifices to appease the gods. But yet, we don't think like that anymore. Because we have been lifted up in pride and arrogance that we repented of earlier and hope you will repent of it later today and tomorrow and the next day and so on, because we are lifted up in so much pride and arrogance today, we make Lucifer look good. I mean, if he was going to extend, if he was going to exalt himself to the throne of God, we live in a day and age where we think we can even go past that. We are so arrogant and full of pride today, and... Because we have been lifted up in pride, we have rejected this doctrine of atonement. Because the whole idea of atonement is that your failures, your imperfections, your shortcomings, your sins, your transgressions, your crimes must be paid for. Now, we can deny it, but you will pay for them. The wages of sin is death. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. But those are the things we don't want to talk about today, right? No, we need a pepsodent smile, and nice, curly, wavy hair, and some real fancy, shiny suit to get on and tell everybody that they're okay. Everything is all right because you are somebody special. And this is your best life now. Well, the problem is this. Man is a sinner. He is born wicked. He is born into wickedness. And he exercises that wickedness. It's not that we become sinners, it's that we are sinners. It's not some external force, but it's out of your heart that proceeds abominations, perversions, and transgressions. So we looked at the meaning of atonement, and it has to do with satisfaction. God's going to get his pound of flesh. Because he is just, and he is holy. 
So we considered some objections to the word. We considered the theology of atonement, which is the uh, theology proper in relation to the study of God, and also anthropology, the study of man. We looked at the worldview of atonement. We looked at the practice of atonement. And so today, hopefully, we can finish up in the last few minutes that we have with the foundations of atonement. So we've already established the fact that the sacred order of atonement in which it is built into the framework of creation. I'm talking about atonement. is built into the framework of creation, both pre- and post-fall. Its foundation is God, who is perfectly just and perfectly merciful, and atonement comes from both his justice and his mercy. It proceeds from both of those things. Atonement fulfills his justice, and atonement fulfills his mercy. It fulfills his justice upon sin. But it also fulfills his justice, it fulfills his mercy for those who trust in Christ who gave himself for our sins because God's wrath was poured out upon him. But, Either way, God is just, and he is merciful. Yes, all things of God are established in creation because he is the creator. Therefore, atonement comes from God. The very concept, the laws that govern it, the practices that are to be applied from it, all come from God. And God, of course, is eternal. And therefore, we know that this concept of atonement is also eternal. It's built into the universe. And you can't have order in the universe without atonement. Look at our society as it is crumbling down. You know what one of the biggest problems that we have is? Is there's no atonement in the land. Justice. Real justice. Not this fake justice that's seeking to defy God. But real true atonement. So when we consider the sacred order, we must consider the who, what, when, where, and why. I think I forgot one. There's supposed to be a how in there. Who, what, when, where, how, and why. Yet the discovery of these things is not based on some unknown thing. It's not based on something unknown that we have to discover, but it's based upon the truth that God has revealed. We can know the truth about these things that God desires for us to know because he has revealed it to man. This is not something that we have to guess about. It's something that we can know because all truth comes from God and the truth of creation and the order of it can only come from God who is the creator of all things. Therefore, we must start with God, which means that we must believe in God know who he is, and how this God has revealed his truth. And that's attainable. Or else he wouldn't have revealed it. All this agnosticism we have today is pure foolishness. Pure foolishness. God has revealed his truth. 
Although this is true of every age, it is even more true today when our atheism is not just confined to our doubts. Because if you go back into the 1600s, they were preaching about atheistic thinking and um, doubts about God. But it was all mostly internal, right? But today, it's not just internal, it's external. It is ingrained through every aspect, every fiber of our culture. But it is foolish to attempt to define the meaning of life in an atheistic worldview. The psalmist said, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's a verse that we're very familiar with. But listen to what the psalmist says following that statement. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. That is the description of an atheistic worldview. And look around our culture now that the atheistic worldview has become dominant. And what do you find? Corruption, abominable works, nothing good. You see, the meaning of life is simple. It's to know God and to be reconciled to God. The first catechism asks the question, what is man's chief end to which it answers? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In Romans chapter 9 verse 22, Paul asks, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy? which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Therefore, man's purpose is to commune with God just as Adam communed with God in the beginning. But our sins have separated us from God, and therefore this can only be accomplished by reconciliation, by satisfaction, or what we call atonement. If we must be reconciled to God, who is the creator of all things and is the source of all truth, then we must be reconciled on his terms and not our own. It does not matter what you think is just. It doesn't matter what I think is just. It doesn't matter what I think is proper atonement. It doesn't matter what I think is proper reparation. The only thing that matters is what God thinks. Because that is to whom it must be made. It doesn't matter what you think is merciful. It only matters what God has decreed and revealed. Anything else is atheistic. Anything else is a denial of God. And we must have a theistic worldview of these things. So first of all, let's consider the natural revelation of the divine In Psalm chapter 19, we've mentioned this before, and so this is kind of a review reminder here. uh, We've mentioned Psalm chapter 19 in relation to this, that how it's built into the universe. It's built into creation, this topic of atonement. But in Psalm 19, listen to this passage, and I want to read a fuller um, reading of it. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. That's the part you're familiar with, right? But the heavens declare the glory of God. What is his glory? To make known the riches of his mercy on vessels of his grace, right? 
Isn't that what we just read earlier? I know there's two parts, the justice part, that make known his power and his glory on the destruction of the wicked, but then his merciful part to make known the glory of his riches, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare it, and the firmament shows his handiwork, but listen to what it goes on to say. It says, day and night utters speech. Day and night is constantly declaring this in creation. The glory of God, his justice and his mercy is constantly being proclaimed by creation. Day and night utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. It's heard throughout the whole earth, the whole world, all peoples, all languages, tribes and races. Everybody hears the utterance of the glory of God coming from his creation, declaring his justice and declaring his mercy. And then it says, their line has gone out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. In other words... All of creation is constantly revealing and declaring the glory of God. As we read in Romans chapter 9 concerning his justice and his mercy. In Romans chapter 1 we are told, remember when it's talking about unrighteous men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness? That's what we need to realize and understand. Listen, if... if People who cannot see and cannot hear uh, creation declaring the glory of God, it's not because they don't hear it. It's not because they can't see it. It's because they suppress it. So they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And Paul says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. This is what we mean by atonement is built into creation. Creation declares it over and over and over again concerning the glory of God. But it's not just found in natural revelation. Also, we have the word of God that declares these things to us, as we are told in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 16, bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So we have a clear revelation in his word concerning the glory of God, which is why Jesus said in his parable concerning the rich man and Lazarus, remember? Lazarus went to paradise. The rich man went to hell. 
And the rich man looked up into paradise and he saw Abraham with the beggar and he asks that someone would send, that would raise up Moses from the dead or some other person and send them unto his brothers to warn them of this place of hell. And what did Abraham say to him? He said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. They have the scriptures. They have the word. Let them hear it. And then he said, nay, Father Abraham, but if one went up to them from the dead, they would repent. And Abraham said, if they will not hear the word, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if one rose from the dead. This is why Jesus said, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Therefore, Jesus would constantly ask this throughout his ministry. Have you not read? Have you not read in the law? Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Or have you not read the scripture? And other similar statements like that. In John chapter 5, he says, for, you, for had you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. But if you will not believe his writings, you'll not believe my word either. Paul, writing to Timothy, said that you have known the, from a child, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. All scripture has been given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect and thoroughly furnished unto all good works. What's the point that we're trying to make here is that we have everything that we need to know and understand. It's that we don't want to know and understand. That's the problem with this generation. That's the problem with our culture. It's not that the truth is not here. It's that we do not want the truth. Think of how much so that is. Adam knew that he was created by God. Adam spoke with God, walked with him, had fellowship with him in the cool of the day. And what did he do? Suppressed the truth. He suppressed it. You see, because we always think, well, if I had this, if I had that, it would be different. No, you would suppress it. The reason why is because we don't want to know the truth. We want to suppress the truth so that we can continue in our unrighteousness. But it's the word of God that gives light. The reason why we are without wisdom today is because we have rejected natural revelation as the heavens are declaring the glory of God constantly and continually throughout all the earth. And we have also rejected the word of God, which is why Paul said in Romans 1 that we profess ourselves to be wise, but we are fools. Because the fool has said in his heart there is no God in the rejection of atonement the rejection of the sinfulness of man, the rejection of total depravity, the rejection of the idea that you are a wicked, sinful reprobate. 
is because of atheism in your heart. It's because we say there is no God, you know? That sin that you commit when your conscience and the Holy Spirit tells you beforehand not to do it, you know when you do it, it's the same as saying there's no God. You see, our worldview today is not based upon a theistic view, but an atheistic view in our sinfulness because we suppress the truth of God. Secondly, let's notice the philosophy of sacrifices. In the Britannica Encyclopedia, it says, Sacrifice is a religious rite in which an object is offered to a divinity in order to establish, maintain, or restore a right relationship of a human being to the sacred order. Your sin and my sin has disrupted the sacred order. And there must be be a restoration of the sacred order. The wages of sin is death. Somebody has to die. That's the problem in our culture today. We won't acknowledge a simple fact that there are some people that have to die. It's atonement. When a soldier goes off to war and gives his life as a sacrifice for other people, he's making civil atonement. When someone transgresses the sacred order in shedding the blood of another man, his blood must be shed to restore that order. It's atonement. There's positive atonement and negative atonement. And so it is a restoration of the sacred order. And so when God told Israel that they were to bring blood sacrifices to atone for their sins, they didn't just think that was something weird. You see, today... In, in our mindset today, we have came to a point where we have rejected this idea of atonement to such a degree that we don't understand. We think it's weird that there is no, uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so, we don't make atonement. But, We understand that sacrifice is worship, it's homage, thanksgiving, communion, restoration, reconciliation. And so when we talk about sacrifices, we're talking about atonement. And yet we have rejected the sacred order of a sacrificial system, even though in Leviticus chapter 4 it says in verse number 1, Now the Lord spake to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins ignorantly against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done, and does any of them, if the anointed priest sins, bring guilt, bringing guilt upon the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish and without offering. And then as you go down through Romans chapter 4, it talks about 
the priest, again, bringing the bull's blood to the tabernacle of the meeting, dipping his finger in the blood and sprinkling some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil on the sanctuary. And then it goes down through the order of all the different people, the whole congregation, when civil rulers sin or when any of the common people sin, that they are to offer sacrifice to the Lord. It's built into the whole system of the Old Testament. And the terrible thing today is that we think, man, that's weird. It's built into the whole system. And then notice also there's this philosophy of priesthood. And again, the Britannica Encyclopedia says, most frequently the intermediary between the community and the God, lowercase g, they're just referring to any God because this was the way the world has worked for 6,000 years. Between the profane and the sacred realms is the priest. Every religion throughout the history of man, has had a sacrificial system and a priesthood, whether it is stated or practiced. The priest was the ritual expert in having special knowledge of the technique of worship and what was accepted as a religious and spiritual practice. So we find in Leviticus chapter 4 again, the chapter that we just saw where the sacrificial system was being communicated to the children of Israel, it also says in verse 31, So the priest shall make an atonement for those who sin, and it shall be forgiven. Verse 26, And the priest shall make an atonement for him concerning his sin, and it shall be forgiven him. Verse 35, And the priest shall make an atonement for his sin that he has committed, and it shall be forgiven him. You see, the priesthood is built entirely through the Old Testament and the Old Testament system. But it's not just in the Old Testament. It's throughout the whole world throughout the last 6,000 years. It's only now when we say, no, we reject that. So with that said, let's consider then the necessity of atonement. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. This is also the conclusion in Hebrews chapter 9. We're not going to be able to read the whole chapter, so I'm just going to make comments. You can follow along, and then I'll point out a couple of things in this chapter as we go down through. But the book of Hebrews is showing us the fulfillment of the Old Testament administration of the sacrificial system and the priesthood. It's showing us the fulfillment in Christ. Not that he came to abolish and to do away with the eternal truths of sacrifice and priesthood. It's not that he came to abrogate the eternal truth of atonement. What he came to do was to fulfill it. And so he abrogated certain practices. But notice, it's talking about the first covenant and the ordinances of divine service. 
And he goes down through these things of how this was practiced in the Old Testament. And then it says in verse number 10 that they were imposed until the time of Reformation. Which was the advent of Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Because notice in verse 11, but Christ came as high priest. In other words, you need a mediator just as much as the saints in the Old Testament needed a mediator. But Christ came as a high priest. And then notice verse number 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean satisfies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ? Saying these practices were important in the Old Testament administration, the Old Covenant administration. But he says, how much more the blood of Christ do you suppose, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, Jesus Christ is better than, and he's the complete fulfillment of them. He is the perfect goal of them. And then he says, and for this reason. Because the Old Testament ordinances were based upon eternal truth. And it's because of that eternal truth, it's because of that reason. What's the reason? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Therefore, in verse 18, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. Verse 20, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. In the verse 22, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Then notice verse 23, therefore it was necessary. The reason why it was necessary for Christ to come and to be become the high priest and to be a sacrifice for sins the reason why it is necessary is because without the shedding of blood there is no remission there is no atonement without the payment upon sin sin has to be paid for sin has to be atoned for Notice the language even in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7-8, through 8, where we are told to purge out the old leaven that we may be a new lump. Since you are truly unleavened, he's making an association here with Passover in the Old Testament administration and the Lord's Supper in the New, Covenant, uh, new Testament administrations, for he says, For indeed Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us, therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Notice this language in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 19. Paul says, what am I saying then? That He's talking about idols. He says that an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything. Is there any real reality? Is there any reality to this sacrificial aspects of the pagans? 
And then he says, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. And then now notice his connection to sacrifice in the Lord's table. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. In Ephesians chapter 5, we're told to walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. What I'm saying is, is the sacrificial system still carrying through into the new covenant. The eternal truths haven't ceased to exist. The particular applications have. Matter of fact, we're even told that we are to present our own sacrifices. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So much so that Paul even says, I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. In Hebrews chapter 3, We are told that Jesus Christ is our high priest. In Hebrews chapter 5, we are told that he's our high priest. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, we are told that we as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house as a holy priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation also speaks to this, how that we would be made kings and priests. We also see in 1 Peter chapter 2, how that we are being made a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to the Lord, and then... Peter says in verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. You see, the Christian religion, whether in the old covenant administration or the new covenant administration, is based upon atonement. Priestly, sacrificial atonement, which was in the first administration, in the Old Covenant, and now based upon these same eternal truths that are found in the justice and mercy of God, it is to be administered in the New Covenant. John Fawcett, who was a London Baptist, pastoring the same church as John Gill previously pastored, and Charles Spurgeon would later pastor, he wrote this. He's also the one that wrote the hymn, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. But he wrote this, the complete atonement which Jesus Christ has made for our sins by the sacrifice of himself is the life and center of the evangelical system. And that which endears it so much to the hearts of those who believe. Here we see pardon procured and the sinner saved while sin is condemned and punished and advance to a state of dignity and honor, and at the same time, the rights of that divine government against which they had rebelled is preserved and maintained. 
Through what Jesus Christ has done and suffered for us, we behold the righteous law of God magnified in justifying those who had violated its precepts and brought themselves under its curse. In the death of that Lamb of God, we perceive at once the Almighty's eternal abhorrence of that which is evil and his infinite love to his offending creatures. And yet today I ask this. Why are we without a foundation for atonement? No sacrifice, no shedding of blood for the remission of sins, no priesthood to announce, pronounce, and do the service for which we can only be reconciled to God. No justice in the punishment of sin. I'm not talking about going back to the Old Testament administration that looked forward to Christ, but I am talking about a new covenant administration that looks back to Christ. Just as the Passover and other elements of the Old Testament sacrificial system was a means of grace to reveal salvation in Christ alone, so too is our New Testament sacrament of the Lord's Supper a means of grace to reveal salvation in Christ alone. Our problem today is that we proclaim a new covenant of nothing. Just as it is wrong to return to the Old Testament because it is something, it is also wrong to practice a new covenant of nothing. New Testament, the new covenant administration is not nothing. It is actually more than what was administered in the Old Testament. The new covenant, the writer of Hebrews says, is better Not because it is nothing, but because it is everything. Because it is the fulfillment of all things that the Old Testament administration pointed to, which is Christ crucified, risen, and ascended to the right hand of God. The sacrifice and the priesthood is now perfected in Christ, not abolished in Christ. The the sacraments of the Old Testament covenant, that is what is abolished. And it has been renewed in Christ in that which is better. The Old Testament application has been abrogated, but the eternal truths have not. And it is necessary that these eternal truths are rightly applied according to the new covenant fulfillment because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Without atonement, sins are left unatoned and there must be satisfaction. So how is God going to appease, be appeased for your sins? Are you going to submit to the sacred order of atonement or are you going to trust in nothing? hoping that God will not require the expiation of sins. God's wrath against sin shall be satisfied, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, because the wages of sin is death. This is the necessity of the atonement. Jesus came and lived a perfect life in order to impute his righteousness to sinners. Jesus, as a lamb, a perfect sacrifice, shed his blood for the remission of sins. He overcame sin, death, and hell, and the grave so that sinners might be made righteous, so that their sins might be atoned, and so that they might be given eternal life. So when we come to the waters of baptism, this is the thing that we are identifying with. 
This is the thing we are signifying and sealing. When we come to the table of the Lord, this is the thing that we are identifying with. This is the thing that we are signifying and sealing through the power and work of the Holy Spirit. And yet today, we count it as a light thing, an insignificant thing. But here the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? Father, we acknowledge our sin here this morning in that we have turned from your truths. We have went our own way. We have done our own thing. And we have trampled the blood of the covenant. We have counted it something that is to be despised, something that is to be mocked, something that is to be laughed at, something that is to be neglected, something that is to be thought lightly of, something that it is to be participated in in hypocrisy. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us Lord, we pray that you would restore a proper understanding, a proper worldview, and a proper um, practice of this doctrine of atonement. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.